If you haven't already, uh, find your message notes, uh, your connection card, and your offering envelope. Those are all in your, your worship bullets. And, and uh, let's get started with today's message. You know, uh, you, maybe you've heard me say this before, but uh, Easter and Christmas, those are challenges when you're, when you're a preacher. When, when you're uh, in charge of worship staff and figuring out what the series is going to be, what the music is going to be, those kind of things, it's a challenge because... You feel like most people know the Christmas and Easter story. Am I right? Am I right? So, so as a pastor, you're thinking, okay, how can I get people's attention with this? Um, I, I know, I mean, I would never do this, but man, I've even thought, you know, like on a Christmas Eve, should I come in on roller skates or, you know, you're not going to see that. Uh, but... You know, how do you get people's attention? And, uh, and it dawned on me, either one Christmas or one Easter, that how do you make the story of God being born into the world or the story of God dying for our sins on the cross, how do you make that more attractive than what it is? It's a great story. And you know, there was, a, there was a time when everyone believed that story, or at least respected it. But lots have changed. Lots of things have changed. Lots of things have changed in the church. You know, I'm, I'm not a historian. I'm, I'm not a scholar. But I love history. I especially love church history. And it's interesting to see how things have changed in history, not just in the short past, but even looking in the long past at the, at the history of church to see how things are done differently. Like for uh, n- new churches that are starting today, millennials, um, they're doing a lot of things that you would call liturgical or more maybe old school. Uh, for, for example, uh, they're burning incense and candles. And so I, I've been in a millennial service pretty recently, and it smelled like uh, I walked into a Spencer's. Do you, do you remember? Do they still have those in malls now? I don't know. If they, if they still have them, they probably shouldn't have them. But uh, when, when I was a teenager, at least, Spencer's, you know, they, you could go in there and you could buy incense, and you could burn that in your room, and I don't know, maybe that... Uh, sort of threw your parents off the trail if you were trying to hide marijuana from them. Uh, I, I didn't have that issue, just maybe I should mention that. But, you, you know, it, um, you know what it smells like. So when I've, I've walked into one of those services, it's like, wow, this smells like Spencer's at um, Eastridge Mall or whatever. <laughs> That's, that mall is not, a, you get that? Some of you got that Eastridge Mall? Freedom Mall, Lisa Freedom Mall, East, Eastland Mall, Eastland Mall. Um, and, and they burn candles. And, and so it, it's interesting to hear them talk about it because they're like, oh yeah, we're going back to the ancient church and we're burning candles and incense. Like, yeah, I mean, it's cool. You know, it, it certainly creates an ambiance, right? Well, h- how many of you grew up in a church that was more liturgical, like a Catholic church or a Lutheran church or a Methodist church? Just a show of hands. So maybe they, if, especially if you were in a Catholic church, they burned incense or burned candles. Do you know where that tradition comes from? Well, they started burning candles in church because they didn't have electricity. It was dark. They burned candles in church for the same reason they would light a candle in their home, so you could see something. They weren't trying to create an ambiance. They just needed light. They needed some light in the place. Um, incense. Any idea why they burned incense? Because the place stank. I mean, th- th- think about it. Th- think about the church going back to the Middle Ages. In the, in the Middle Ages, uh, people took a bath maybe four times a year. Maybe, maybe, maybe that often. Um, and they were an agrarian society, even if you were in Paris, France. You know, when the, um, when the Notre Dame was built, I mean, there, there are no... Uh, paved walkways and, and things like that. And people were coming in from farms. They, they either had B.O. 
or they had horse manure on them or you know, they, it just smelled. And so priests were like, hey, <laughs> you think we can make this place smell a little more heaven and a little less like a barn? What if we, what if we burn incense? A lot of people don't know that. Uh, when I was a kid, every church, every church had stained glass windows. How many of you grew up in a church with stained glass windows? You know what stained glass windows are for? It tells the story of the gospel. Scott, you can't answer any more questions. You're disqualified. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You, you can answer them. Um, stained glass windows were developed in a time when people couldn't read. And so depending on the size of the church, that depended on how much of the gospel story they would tell. But usually if you're looking at the stage, if you're standing on the stage to the left, they would start with usually some sort of prophecy about the Messiah. And they would go to the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, and they would end somewhere over here with the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. But it was to tell the story to people on the inside who were illiterate and couldn't read. Now, when guys like me started churches 20 years ago, we, we didn't want to have church buildings with stained glass windows in them. Now, young guys who are starting churches, even though they don't build churches with stained glass windows in them because stained glass is extremely expensive, they have projectors, you know, like we have a projector here. They have projectors that project stained glass windows on the walls. It, it, it's kind of cool, and everything has its place, but things happen in churches for a reason. Even, even the way we do church, even, even what a church service looks like and feels like, just think about how much the church has changed just in our lifetime. And, you know, that's to varying degrees because we're different ages in here. But my parents, you know, in the world, we still have the World War II generation. I would call the greatest generation. And if you've seen the movie Midway, you would agree. Um, but you still have the World War II generation, their children who are the baby boomers, some of you in here. Then there are some who are my age, like the Busters, were children of the baby boomers and their Gen Xers and... There's probably two or three more in there that I'm just not mentioning right now. You have millennials and just different generations of children. Think about how much church has changed just among those generations. For, for example, my parents, who are baby boomers, they remember when they got their first TV. Think about that. My dad remembers getting their first TV. So people from my parents' generation, man, they were just fascinated by TV, fascinated by it. And, uh, you know, they, they, all the stations checked off by midnight, um, and, you know, th there were only three channels that you could even see back then, maybe a fourth one, depending on how good your rabbit ears were, but, you know... They, they were entertained by television, so they watched television. So if you're Rick Warren starting Saddleback Church and you're reaching baby boomers, you, you have to do church where you entertain. I don't mean that in a bad way, but you've got to get their attention with programming and what the stage looks like and you know, how the music sounds and that sort of thing. The next generation, my generation, I'm sort of on the front end of, of the, the busters. We didn't watch TV. What did we do with TV? We played it. I mean, we, we played a version of TV at the game room at the mall. But then we had these great things, you know, after Pong, we had these great things uh, called Atari game stations. It, yeah, that just, uh, somebody said amen right there. You could play Defender and all sorts of things on Atari. We played television. What's, what's interesting now is that 
millennials today are not just playing it, they're in it. They're submersed into it. What, what I think is interesting about this is um, d- sports, um, like Major League Baseball, for example, they're trying to figure out how to get spectators involved in the game. Now, some of these changes, I don't think you'll ever see them in my lifetime, but, but who knows. Um, the, the fans that show up at a baseball game want to be a part of the outcome of the game because they've grown up being a part of the outcome of things that they're doing on TV, things that are entertaining them. So Major League Baseball, and again, I don't think you'll ever see this in my lifetime, they're, they're looking at um, letting fans have input on the starting lineup, setting the roster, having sections in the bleachers where if the fan catches the ball, the batter is out. Now, again, I don't think you'll ever see that in my lifetime, but it, let, it, it lets you know generationally what people are thinking about and those who are trying to sell to them how they're trying to sell to them. Think, think about how that relates to church. You, you have young people today, they they don't want to just stand back and be entertained. They've, they've never been entertained that way. They want to be a part of what the church is doing. Let me tell you something. The, the church that reaches the next generation will get the, that this generation involved in what the church is doing. Otherwise, they'll lose them. And the church has been saying goodbye to generations for generations now. Let me tell you how, and this gets into our message for today. Through the years, the church has not changed its approach to how we give a message and even what the message is. So my parents grew up going to Sunday school. I grew up going to Sunday school. How many others in here grew up going to Sunday school? So in Sunday school, what they would say about the Bible is this is the Bible, it's the word of God, every bit of it's true, and you just believe it. Now the truth is, most of the people that were handing the Bible out, they had never read it for themselves. And they didn't really know what was in it either. But there was a day and a time where people just had a respect for the Bible, because it's the Bible. And why wouldn't you respect it? We were a Judeo-Christian society, we're sort of post-Christian now, maybe even pre-Christian But at one time, people had a general understanding of what's in the Bible, and they had a general respect for it, and they just believed that it was the Word of God. But as we become more and more secular, people know less and less and less about what's in the Bible. Let me give you an example. Today, when you're watching the football games, and I'll be watching the Panthers play, um, there may be someone in the stadium holding up a John three sixteen sign, but they won't show it on one of the major networks because they just don't do that anymore. But in the 80s and probably into the 90s, every game, they were going to show some guy out in the crowd, he had a John three sixteen sign that he's holding up. And just seeing John three sixteen for millions of people across the country whether they said it out loud or even said it in their mind, they were thinking it, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. My K-5 kindergarten teacher, Miss Siegel, taught me that at Mulberry Baptist Church uh, preschool when I was a little kid there. But most people grew up knowing that. Now, if they were to show John 3.16 on a screen, most people today, especially younger people, would go, hey, John 3.16, what is that? Is that a new app? Where do I get that? Is that at the app store? What is John 3.16? They don't know. And let me tell you what what has created the disconnect 
the stupid answers that we church leaders have given people over the years. Where we just tell our kids, hey, it's the Bible, it's God's word. You believe it, you read it. Doesn't really matter if you don't understand it. It's God's word. If it's in there, it's true. And you just live by it. The, the problem is that when they get to college, or they get out in the, the real world somewhere, and they're, they're more on their own, and uh, let, let's say they are in college, and they have a, a professor that asks them questions they don't know the answers to. They bring those questions home, and a youth pastor, a pastor, mom and dad just gives the answer, hey, you just believe it. It's the Bible, it's the word of God. And, and so to these serious, real academic questions, we give Sunday school answers for them. And eventually, without saying it, without saying, okay, today is December 8th, 2019, I'm officially walking away from the church. I officially don't believe this anymore. That probably happens, but most of the time people just walk away. They just don't attend anymore. They don't take it seriously. Because they don't believe. They haven't been taught the scriptures. They haven't, they haven't had the tough parts explained. They haven't had it put into they haven't had it put into context. And, and I think the worst answer that we've given generations of kids is, well, you just believe it. You just, by blind faith, you believe it. L let me tell you something. The, the first Christians did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus because they read it. They witnessed it. And that event, you, you could take the Gospels, you could take everything out from the death and the resurrection of Jesus. None of the other stuff that comes before the death and resurrection of Jesus matters at all if the resurrection isn't true. What were they believing in? They were believing in the death that Jesus died and that he was alive again. And the Bible didn't make that story. That story and the church that grows out of that made the Bible. The church collected the Bible. But for the first 350 years, people were accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior, and they didn't have John 3.16. They didn't have the B-I-B-L-E. What were they believing in? They were believing in Jesus in that event the death and resurrection of Jesus. But not blind faith. Like, let me read you a, a verse of scripture. We'll, we'll dive into this a little more next week. But uh, in, in Luke chapter two, verse 15, you know, the uh, Luke two, that's the great Christmas story where the disciple or the shepherds are out in the shepherd's field and the angel appears to them and says, um, uh, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. And, and listen, some of us, while you're listening to me read this, you're hearing, hearing Linus, aren't you? <laughs> you're thinking peanuts, Charlie Brown, and you're hearing Linus's voice. That's how we grew up. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which is for all mankind. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign unto you. Unto you. you will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there were with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And for a lot of us, that's where the story stops. For the shepherds out in the shepherd's field, that's where the story Again, here's what verse 15 says. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they didn't dismiss it out of pocket like a lot of people will do today. They didn't just say, oh, yeah, cool light show. 
wow, this, the sound effects there were amazing, but, you know, this is just all ridiculous. It can't be true. Nor did they say, hey, that's, that's fantastic news. That changes all of our lives. Let's just accept it. Instead, what do they do? They put on their CSI hats, and they go and check it out for themselves. They go and check it out. They're looking for the evidence These shepherds, nor the first disciples or the first followers of Jesus, they didn't just believe it because they heard it. They didn't just believe it, even because an angel said it. They went and found the truth. And over the next couple of weeks, that's what we're going to do. And and each, each week, this week, next week, and then, let's see, I think next week's the 15th, and then you have the 22nd. We're going we're gonna to answer the question, can I believe in Christmas? And we're not, we're not going to do the Sunday school version of it. We're going to deal with the evidence of it. Because if you can believe in Christmas, if you can believe that that baby born in a manger was God and that God grew up and died on a cross for the forgiveness of your sins, came back to life, if you can believe that, that changes everything. And it's a story that you can't ignore. So I'm not asking you to believe today. I'm asking you to be like these shepherds and say, okay, let's go see if we can believe this. Well, Jimmy, I've been a Christian for a long time. Yeah, I know. I've been a Christian for a long time, too. And through the years, I've had my doubts. Through the years, I've had to go and search out the evidence. I had to know before I gave my life to preaching the gospel to go to seminary instead of going to law school, to be a preacher and not the rock star I started out to be. I wanted to make sure it's true, that I can believe it, that it's something I can give the rest of my life to. And so I'm just asking you to follow the evidence. Whether you're a longtime believer, whether this is your first Sunday in church, or if you walked away from the church, I want you to follow the evidence. All right. Does this have your attention? Think this is worth doing? So here's where I want us to start. If you're taking notes, write this into your notes. You can go back and listen to the message later. And we're not going to get all the way through your message notes today, so we'll just pick back up here next week. I'm not in a hurry. We don't need to be in a hurry. We're talking about the truth of God's word. If it takes us a couple of weeks, then that's fine. But let's start with historical context because there has been a time when people question whether or not Jesus was a real and historical person. Now, let me tell you this. On virtually any college or university campus you can think of, and the greatest skeptics among them, no serious scholar believes any longer that Jesus was not a historical Figure that he was not a real person. That doesn't mean that they accept him as Lord and Savior, the Messiah, but they know that he was a real person because the scriptures are not the only ones who talk about Jesus. There are dozens of secular sources, and in particular, Roman and Jewish historians who talk about this Jesus of Nazareth. But let's talk about the historical context. And the reason I think we should do this is because that's where Luke begins. I want you to just listen to a few of these passages of Scripture. I have them in your notes. And you can follow along on the screens or in your notes. You can just listen along because, again, you have the notes to take home with you. Luke begins his gospel, Luke chapter 1, verse 1. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. You know what he's referring to there? He's referring to the fact that he knows that others are writing gospels. 
Other people are writing stories about Jesus of Nazareth. And most scholars think that Luke, well, they think Mark was the first gospel written, then maybe Matthew, and that Luke had Matthew and Mark as some of his source documents. The reason they know that is because much of what's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the stories are very similar in each of those gospels. But Luke says, hey, other people have done this. Just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the very first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Now, why these four, why the four gospels that we have? And I'm going to talk about the gospels in a few minutes, but why these four gospels? If there are many accounts, well, the church fathers realized that they needed to have stories or biographies about Jesus that were reliable, that they could depend on. And they accepted these four gospels because they know that they were written by people directly connected to Jesus. People who were followers of Jesus. The only exception is Luke. But Luke was a disciple of the apostle Paul. And because of his close connection to the apostle Paul and the the data that Luke had gathered up, the early church fathers believed that with the Gospel of Luke, they had an accurate record of the life of Jesus. But these are people connected to Jesus. I'll, I'll say more about the fact that this didn't happen generations after the death of Jesus. These are people writing stories about Jesus who knew him, who walked with him, who are given, giving eyewitness accounts. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Do you hear what he's saying there? He's saying, hey, hey, listen, I did the research. Some of you know that Luke was a doctor. I think Luke was probably a Renaissance man. He's a tremendous historian. You see that throughout his gospel. But I think he's a Renaissance man because he seems to be a music man. Uh, in Luke chapter 1, he records Mary's Magnificent, Mary's song, and Zechariah's song. And he, he says, listen, I've investigated this from the very beginning. And he did go back to the beginning. For, for example, we have, we have in, in Luke chapter 1... The, uh, the announcement from Gabriel to Mary that Mary is going to conceive a child that's not fathered by a human being, but whose father is the Holy Spirit. And then we have Mary's song. Listen, this is personal stuff. And the other gospels don't have it. Why does Luke have it? Because Luke went to Mary's house, sat out on the front porch and ate Banana pudding and drank lemonade with her. Uh, just my silly way of thinking. They had a cup of coffee. And Dr. Luke, historian, Renaissance man Luke says, tell me about how all this started. And so when you hear the story of the announcement, you're hearing that from Mary's perspective. You're hearing Jesus' mama talk about when she heard that she was going to be pregnant with this baby. And hey, nobody else believed her at the time either. But they did later. He says, I, because I've researched this from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. We don't know who Theophilus is. Theophilus means friend of God. Philos means friend. Theo means God. So it could be someone who is a Christian. It could be someone that Luke is trying to disciple. Maybe he's a skeptic, but Luke writes this gospel and presents it to him. He says, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught, so that you can know beyond a doubt that what you have is a truth that you can tether your life to. Then in the next verse, you don't, you don't have it in just the same way, but in verse five, he says as a transition, in the time of Herod, the king of Judea. Do you know what he just did there? 
He just dated the life of Jesus. They didn't have a calendaring system the way we have calendars now. So, so he, they couldn't say, you know, on December 25th, year 1 AD, Jesus was born. They dated things with events. Look, look at the next couple of verses. This is over in chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This, and, and then he gives us this note in um, parentheses. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. You know why he does that? He does that so that people who are hearing this, because it was probably a hearing gospel before it was a written gospel. So people hearing this or reading this would go, oh yeah, yeah, of course. I remember when uh, Quirinius was in charge. I remember when they did this census. The Roman government's trying to expand. They wanted more tax money. We all had to go into our the city of our hometown, register for our taxes. We had to pay a lot of money. Yeah, I remember that year. And then, and then listen to how Luke begins chapter three. And, and right after this, he talks about the life of, uh, of John the Baptist. He says, in the 15th year, that's pretty specific, isn't it? In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, See, he just narrows us down even further. Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eturia, and uh, Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. I mean, he's just nailing it down. There's no way to be alive in the first century living in Judea and not know who these people are and when this stuff happened. Why does it matter? Luke is saying, fact check me on it. For a long time, there were scholars who pulled this name, Lysanias, Tetrarch of uh, Abilene, out and said, Luke's completely wrong here. We know is wrong because uh, Lysanias uh, was not the tetrarch of Abilene. There was a Licinius who was a leader, but at a different time period and a different place. And so skeptics would point at Luke to say, see, you can't trust anything else Luke says if he gets this wrong. A few years ago, a group of archaeologists digging around Samaria near Abilene found a stone with Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, carved into it. Turns out there were two guys named Lysanias who lived at different times. And those archaeologists had to eat their words to say we were wrong. Dr. Luke was right. Let me tell you the dirty secret about archaeologists. When they go to Jerusalem, I've been there enough to know. When they go to Jerusalem, they have other sources they take with them, but they always take a copy of the New Testament. You know why? It's the most trustworthy document they have for investigating what's in the dirt in first century Judea. And Luke says, fact check me on it. Got a little bit more time? Just a little bit? Let's talk about the authenticity of the Gospels. That's, that's the second gathering of evidence here. The Gospels themselves, are they reliable? Because one of the things that you hear from skeptics um, are things like, well, the Gospels were written much later after the life of Jesus and Therefore, they're not reliable or there are differences in the gospel. So how do you know any of it's true? Well, how many of you read The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown? Show of hands. If you, did you see the movie maybe? Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you remember the story? So Dan Brown claims throughout the book that what he's giving is history. Interestingly enough, uh, <laughs> Barnes & Noble 
Remember Barnes and Noble? You remember bookstores before Amazon? Uh, they had this in the fiction section. Not in the nonfiction section. But a lot of people read the Da Vinci Code like it was the Bible, like it was a historical document. It's just full of errors. And one of the things that Dan Brown says in the Da Vinci Code is that the Bible, the Gospels were not written until the time of Constantine, Emperor Constantine, like three, mid-350s A.D., 300 years after the life of Jesus. That's just not true. I can show you places in the gospel if we had, if we had more time. I will, I will show, you, show you one, but I can show you places in the gospels where you can tell that the gospels were, were written down and circulated and held as stories that people did not deviate from just months after the death of Jesus. Months we're not talking about years. We're not talking about decades. We're not talking about generations. But you know what historians say? Historians say that it takes about four generations to take what was a historical event or truth. It takes about four generations for myth and legend to fill up that story to the point where you can no longer believe that story is history. So let's just go with a liberal dating of the Gospels. We're not talking about generations. At the most, we're talking about a decade or two. For example, in Luke 21, verses 5 and 6. Now, the Passover is about to happen in Jerusalem. Jesus is about to be arrested, crucified, and he'll be resurrected from the grave. Lots of people are in Jerusalem for the Passover and Jesus and his disciples are at Herod's temple. Ever been to Herod's temple? Some, some, some of you have. I asked you this earlier in the service. Um, when our group was over there just a few months ago, we were down at one of the surviving corners of the temple and some of the stones are as big as semi-tractors. They're ginormous. And, and Herod's temple was huge. Most of these guys, it's the biggest building they'd ever seen before. And Herod built it that way. He wanted people to be amazed whenever they saw this temple. They wanted them to be blown away. It was the, it was the biggest building most of them would ever see in their lives. And they're marveling over it. Luke says some of, the, some of his disciples, some of Jesus' disciples were remarking about how the, the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. He's saying, hey, listen, you think this building is something? This building's gonna be torn down. What was Jesus doing? Jesus was looking ahead to 70 AD when the Roman general Titus, the son of the emperor, comes to finish some business his daddy started a decade or so earlier. He came to destroy Jerusalem, and he did. He tore, he tore, tore to put, killed everybody they could get their hands on, sent the Jews away. If Jews are ever found in Jerusalem again, they'll, they'll be killed that's what the signs were, and it, the temple was destroyed. Jesus gives that in the context of the end of the world. You know why? Because if you were a Jew living in first century Judea, and the Romans come in, and they start killing everybody, and they pull down this temple, to them that has to be the end of the world. So Jesus gives this prophecy, but then just a, f a few years after Jesus, you have the gospel of Luke written, and Luke also wrote the book of Acts. 
Nowhere in Luke's gospel and nowhere in the book of Acts is there any mention of Titus destroying Jerusalem. They would have mentioned it. It was too big not to mention. It would be like someone from my parents' generation try to, trying to give the high spots of their lives and not mentioning where they were when John Kennedy was killed or where they were when they found out that Elvis had died. It would be like someone from my generation trying to give an account of what's happened in our lives generally over the last 50 years and not mentioning 9-11. It's not mentioned because it hasn't happened. So 20 years, 30 years, at the most. But we're not talking about long periods of time. How many of you have heard of Alexander the Great? How about Billy Shakespeare, William Shakespeare? You know, one of the one of the things that skeptics will say about the Bible is that we don't have an original surviving copy. And that's true. The gospel's included. There are fragments that go back to late first century, early second century. You know how, do you, when, I don't know if they still do this or, or not. We, we had to read Shakespeare not all of it. We had to read some of Shakespeare, like Macbeth and some of those things in high school. Did y'all have to do that? You, you know how many original copies there are of any of Shakespeare's works? None. But do you believe that there was a Billy Shakespeare? So do historians. Literary historians, they, they never question whether or not William Shakespeare was a real person that he lived. Alexander the Great, you know that guy? You cannot talk about world history, ancient or modern, without talking about Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, his father was Philip of Macedon. He had conquered lots of the world. Alexander the Great conquered all of the known world during his time, but the empire was so big that when he died from syphilis as a young man, the kingdom had to be divided up into three parts. The Seleucid dynasty, the Ptolemy dynasty, and I can't remember the other one right now, but Egypt, Iran, those places are all divided up into kingdoms. You cannot talk about history without talking about Iran and Iraq and Egypt and those places. Alexander the Great, you just can't do it. The first historian to write about Alexander the Great was a guy named Plutarch, a Roman historian, who wrote about Alexander the Great 400 years after Alexander the Great lived. But some of the same skeptics that would say you can't trust the Bible because it's written 30 or 40 years after the life and death of resurrection have no problem believing in Alexander the Great and whatever they read in Plutarch's history of Alexander the Great. Follow the evidence. This is where we'll pick up next week. If you think this is worth doing. Do you? Let's stand together. I want us to pray. Our band's coming up. and Can I give you one more while you're standing? Man, I could talk about this stuff for days, but I know we can't. Let, let, me, let me give you one more. And take this one home with you. So, what about, the, what about the discrepancies in the Gospels? I mean, there, there are differences in the Gospels. What about them? And one, one of the places that skeptics will point to is um, the, the difference in the dialogue that Jesus has with the thieves on the cross. One of the Gospels says that when, when Je well, we know that Jesus had a, a, a criminal on either side of him. One of the Gospels says that um, 
both of the men cursed Jesus. But another gospel says that um, Jesus had a personal conversation and that both of the criminals were not cursing at Jesus. One cursed him, but the other said, the other criminal, like he looked around Jesus and spoke to the other criminal. Jeff, not that you're a criminal. I'm just pointing that way. I'm not pointing at you or Bill or Danny back there or Monty. Well, maybe Monty. And, and, and he says, um, listen, we deserve to be here. We deserve to be dying on a cross, but this man has done nothing. And then he says to Jesus, when you go into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. But skeptics will look at that and say, no, 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 no. See, 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 which one is true? And you don't know. You can't tell which one's true. So they both must be wrong. And so you can't believe the gospels. Well, we, we have some, uh, we, we have police officers in our church. We have a couple of detectives. And, and they would tell you that if they were going to investigate a murder and there were witnesses around that were willing to talk to the police, if, uh, if one of these detectives said, hey, who, who saw this murder? And 10 people raised their hands. The detectives would not say, well, okay, you look like the most honest person. I'll take you. Everybody else can go home. No, no, you interview all 10 of them. They all saw different things. They all saw it a, a different way. So, some were right down close where it happened. And their experience was, was one thing. And then there were some at the back and they saw only a little bit. That's what you have when you have the differences in the gospels with Jesus on the cross. Some of the eyewitness accounts were way back there on the other side. They were out in the lobby. Jesus died right here. So they just saw two criminals talking to Jesus. They assumed they're criminals. They must be saying criminal things. But then the other gospel writer said, no, no, no. Um, this is what was said, and I got this from a person who was right there. They heard the whole conversation. So it's differences, but it's just different eyewitness accounts. And both of them are reporting what they saw. And, and, and listen, so there are four gospels, and they're not all the same word for word. If they were the same word for word, that would be a sure sign that they got together, put their story together, made sure they had their story straight before they told everybody else. Instead, they include things in the gospels that if you were making the story up, you would never include them. I mean, sometimes the disciples look like goobers. Sometimes they sound like it. They're faithless. They're spineless. There, there are things in there that would embarrass them embarrass them. If you were making up a story, you would never include those things. They include them because they're not making up a story. They're telling you what happened. The Gospels, they're historical eyewitness accounts. Stories that were written down but were told immediately after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Stay tuned. We'll come back to this next week. Let me pray for us. And by the way, we're going to be having a baptism right after this service. And I think we have two or three people who are going to be baptized. I want to invite you to stay. It won't last long. If you can't, we understand that. But it'll be exciting if you can. So as soon as this service is over, those who are being baptized, um, I'll, I'll meet you at the back. In fact, while the band is doing this last song, you just go ahead and slip out now, and I'll meet you at the baptistry. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for these documents that we have. Lord, we're not going to be a generation that lets this just slip away. This is the truth, the truth of your word, and it has a story of life in it, and it's a real story. Luke lets us know that. He lets us know these are not once upon a time made-up fairy tales. These are things that really happen. These are events that we can know happen, that we can trust in. And Lord, if we can prove that, if we can see the evidence of that, it changes everything in our lives. So Lord, I pray not only over this day, I pray over the days to come that you would show yourself to us next weekend, the following weekend. And Lord, let us experience you like we never have in our lives before. We pray in the great name of Jesus and those who agreed said, amen. amen.
last chance. Sing it out. worshiping with us here today at Rocky River Church. Have a wonderful, joy-filled week. We'll see you again next Sunday. You're dismissed.